You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. And all God's people said, Well, amen, amen. Well, children will begin to make their way. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy. Go over there in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Good to see you this morning. And yes, let the kids go because they'll be a lot happier. You'll be a lot happier. I'll be a lot happier. We'll all be a lot happier. And they'll have a great time. We thank the Lord for those that do that ministry. What a great worship. And Jeffrey's right, no matter how we come into this place, when you get before the Lord in His presence, you know there's a peace that comes over us and we fix our eyes on Jesus and that's the key. I'm, I'm speaking today on the subject, how to build resilience. And, and you know, a lot of times, I, I, I guess if I have a soapbox, my soapbox is to parents and parenting. So I would normally title this message, How to Build Resilience in the life of your child, but it's also how to build resilience in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your friendships, in fellow believers, and as well as in children. You know, I wrote down last week, I I listened online, was listening to Ledge, and one of the things that Ledge did last week, he talked about this critical component that is required if you and I are going to build resilience in our own life, and that is self-awareness. You ever had somebody look at you and say these these words? Look at yourself. Look at yourself. You ever thought about that? Looking Looking at yourself. You know, Ledge talked to us about who we are, who we are in Christ, and how important we have a clear understanding of who we are, that we're able to look at ourselves. And then Ledge took us in the book of Genesis, to the life of Jacob. And I wrote down here, I was taking notes as he was preaching, and I wrote down here, here is the powerful biblical example of Jacob who went from a cheating, underhanded, manipulating conspirator, a patriarch who would deceive anyone who got in his way, only to be broken by the incarnate Christ and with a dislocated hip, clinging and begging for the blessing of God, God does so by asking him a question, what is your name? And I wrote this down, the fear, the loss of resilience is not of God, but of a discovery that takes over where we forget who we are. You can never be courageous You can never have resilience if you don't come to a point you understand who you are. And that's critical. And so in in 2 Timothy, Paul is about to die. Paul is in a pit. He's waiting to be beheaded. He's writing to the closest that he has to family. That is Stephen. I mean, that that is Timothy. But he's worried about Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he said, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. Boy, that is the key. That's what Ledge was saying last week. You and I are not going to be courageous. We're not going to be strong. We're not going to be resilient until we have a clear understanding of who we are. And sometimes we're where we are in life because we do not have a clear conscience. Paul said this, As night and day I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your mother Lois and in your mother, your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Now watch what Paul says here. For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan in flames the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
For Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of what? Of fear, of timidity. But a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed, Timothy, to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Wow. Let's pray again. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you do. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, if you think about it, what's happened to resilience? And we're going to define that in a moment. But what's happened to this quality of resilience, this courage, this intestinal fortitude that kind of keeps us with a positive attitude and we keep moving forward? What's happened to it? You know, I said a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about fear, we're living in a world today, we're living in a nation today, we're living in a society today that is crippled by fear. I mean, we live in fear. Fear, hey, listen, fear is big business. You make a lot of money if you get people afraid. Because if you can get somebody afraid, if they live in a perpetual fear, then you have control over them. Now listen to me. We walk by faith, not by sight, and not by fear. You see, fear is the enemy of faith. And so what the enemy would have you to do is live your life in fear. So first of all, what is this thing of resilience? If I'm a parent, and I want to, and listen, parent, you better build resilience into your children because they're going to need it like they've never needed it before. Every major study that's being done today has said that the world is in a major shift historically. So you're going to have to have resilience. So what is resilience? Listen to this. Resilience is the ability to withstand adversity and bounce back from difficult life events. Did you hear that? Resilience is the ability to withstand adversity and to bounce back from difficult life events. Being resilient does not mean a person, a person does not experience stress, emotional upheaval, and suffering. Resilience, listen to this, involves the ability to work through those emotional pains and suffering and come out on top. Isn't that powerful? Isaac Wright, and I would recommend that every one of you read the book. Now, some of the language in it, I don't recommend. But Isaac Wright is an African-American man who wrote a book called Mark for Life. In this book, he talks about being a black man suffering the injustice on the streets by law enforcement. He went on to talk about not only corruption with law enforcement, but corruption within the prosecution, corruption within our penal system, basically geared against an African-American. This man with no education or some education was set up, sent to prison, and while in prison began to study. He studied law. He became an expert in law, judicial review. And finally, he went to court years later and represented himself and won his freedom. Now, let me tell you the thing about Isaac Wright. Isaac Wright had resilience. He fought the system and he won. And he was right to win because he was an innocent man who had been falsely accused. What type of personality is resilient? Listen to this. Resilience is associated with a personality trait, a pattern that, listen, is mature, is responsible, is optimistic, is persevering, is cooperative. How does someone who is resilient act? 
Listen to this. They accept what they cannot change and focus their energy on what they can change. That's what Isaac Wright did. Dr. Southwick, he's a professor emeritus of psychiatry, studies in post-traumatic stress disorder, and resilience. He studied resilience at Yale University School of Medicine. He co-authored a book on resilience called The Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. Listen to what this Yale emeritus professor said. Resilient people reappraise a difficult situation and look for meaningful opportunities within it. They have a mission, a meaning, and a purpose. You just can't keep them down. Secondly, how have we gotten where we are today? Let me ask you something. Do you believe people are more fearful, courageous, resilient today than they were in previous generations? I don't. Now, for some of you personally, I can understand you saying that. For some African-American men and women in this room, you have walked through civil rights, you have walked through uh, some of the uh, garbage and the leftovers of Jim Crow, uh, for some of you, you've had to fight those battles and you've had to be resilient. I, I understand that. But I would say for the most part that in our nation today, that we're not resilient. That we're not bold, we're not courageous, that something has been lost. Now I want you to take your Bible, hold your finger on 2 Timothy, but I want you to go back into the Old Testament to 2, uh, 2 Chronicles. So go all the way back there, you get to 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st uh, Chronicles. So 1st Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. I want you to see this. Now, I, I, want, you to, I want you to see this. Okay, 1st Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Now, Everybody look this way when you find it. Look this way. I want you to find it, and then I want you to look this way. In fact, I'll never forget Reggie looked at me. You know, it always made me proud if I said something. Reggie went, you know, I didn't know that. Do you know that many consider that Job is the oldest book in the Old Testament? Reggie knew that. But do you know that many believe that Job was one of the sons of Issachar? So with that in mind, I want you to listen now to this. In, second, in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, watch this. Men of Issachar who understood what? They understood the times and they what? And they knew what Israel should do. In other words, the writer of Chronicles said this. He said the tribe of Issachar, the men of Issachar, these men that may have included Job in the Old Testament, these men, listen, they understood the times, culture, society, history. They understood the times and what else? What did they also do? They knew what the people of God should do. My friend, that is critical. And hey, if you're a parent raising children, you better know the times. You better know today what society, the shifts that are taking place, and you better know those well. Listen to what one writer said about that. He said this passage, he said, the men of Issachar had a deep understanding of the times. Understanding the times meant that they knew precisely what Israel, the covenant people of God, ought to do. When I read that, I said, well, what's happened to our nation? Billy Graham said before he died, we were in a vacuum of leadership. Billy Graham warned America, he said, we're in a vacuum of leadership. In other words, we don't have no leaders anymore. And he said, when you have a vacuum of leadership, he said, it's dangerous in society because nature abhors a vacuum and a vacuum will be filled by anything. And even Billy Graham warned of an Adolf Hitler. So what's happened to us? I want you to listen closely. This taught me a lot. 
because we're gonna, I want to do a little overview of terminology that is thrown around a lot, but you and I may not understand it, but it may help a parent understand the times. Listen closely. And I want you to think, listen, parent, I want you to think about your parents, your grandparents, your, great, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents, if you can that far. Now, an overview, baby boomers. Now, a baby boomer is anyone born between 1946 and 1964. So between 1946 and 1964, if you were born in that period of time, which I was, 1955, then, then you're a baby boomer. A baby boomer is a person who right now is between the ages of 57 to 75. There's over 71 million of us baby boomers. And one of the problems in our country today is we're all hitting Social Security. And we're living longer. Now, who was before the baby boomers? Now, this is critical. They're called, listen to this, we don't hear anything about them. They're called the silent or traditionalist generation. Now, these are people that were born, listen to this, parent, you better listen. Say amen if you're listening. Amen. The silent traditional generation was born between 1925 or 1928 to 1948. My dad was born 1929, the same year Martin Luther King Jr. was born, 1929. So he's just barely in this group. Now the, listen to this, the silent traditional generation, born between 28 and 48, called the silent traditionalist genera, genera, uh, generation, the theory is this, why are they called that? Because after the greatest generation, well, who's the greatest generation? Those people that were born before 1928. My grandmother was born 1902. My grandfather, 1901. They're called the greatest generation. Tom Brokaw called them that. Do you know why? Because these were people that were navigating World War I, the 1929 crash, the Great Depression, World War II, they were navigating some critical historical moments and Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation in the history of this nation. But then listen, now listen closely because this taught me a lot. This generation produced the silent generation. The silent generation, those born after 28 to 48, the silent generation grew up in a time where people had fewer children, smaller, children, smaller groups. Children, listen to this, in the silent generation, children were taught to be quiet, to be unintrusive, and they, listen to this, they tended toward conformity or traditionalism. Now, after 40 years in the ministry, I wish I'd have known that. I wish I had known that every time we were taking steps in this church that the silent generation was either going, they would do this. They would do those kind of things publicly in a, in a sanctuary like this. Why? Because they were conforming, traditional, check off the boxes, go through the formality of church. 11 to 12, walk through the bulletin, put on the little dog and pony show, and let's be done, and let's beat the Methodist to Cracker Barrel. So this was the silent generation. Now, not all of them were. One writer said it's also during this time, and for the African-American who answered, I don't even know who did. But for the African-American, this was at the time of the Civil Rights Movement. This was the time of the, uh, of the 1960s. This was a time when 1960s counterculture. This is the time of rock and roll. So there were those that were pushing back. Then came Gen X. Well, who's Gen X? Gen X is those that are born between 1965 and 1979 or 80. They are currently between 41 and 56 years of age. Gen Y were born between 1981 and 1994 to 96. They are currently between 25 years of age and 40 years of age. 
They, they're 72.1 million of the population in this country. Gen Z is the newest generation born between 1997 and 2012. They are currently between the ages of 9 years old and 24 years of age. There are nearly 68 million of those. The latest generation, and my little new granddaughter would fit in that group, and younger grandchildren, is called Gen A, Generation Alpha. This starts with children that were born in 2012, 2012 until now, and will continue this generation until 2025. They number about 48 million. Now you may say, well, what does that have to do? Do you see how important it is for you and I to recognize the times? My grandmother, the greatest generation, my grandfather, the greatest generation, World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, they went through great suffering and they learned to survive and they were resilient. But they produced a smaller group because of whatever it may have been. A lot of it was the economics, whatever it may have been, they produced the silent, the traditional generation that basically grew up and they were told to be quiet. Children are to be seen and not heard. And then each generation comes with its peculiar dynamics. The sons of Iskar knew the times. Neil Howe in his book called The Fourth Turning is here. The Fourth Turning is here is the name of the book. Meaning that a great, listen to this, he's saying that a great social shift is taking place in the world. What the seasons of history tell us about how and when this crisis will end, he states, in opposition to the 1970s, parents, put up your spiritual antennas. In opposition to the 1970s treatment of children, where a phrase such as children or kids are special was hardly ever appeared, hardly ever appeared, uh, or was commonplace in the 1980s, he went on to say that there's been a shift. In other words, the silent traditional generation, the baby boomer generation. Basically, there was this idea that children were almost like an appendage. that would be seen and not heard. Quiet. But now all of a sudden, he says there's a social shift. Now listen to this. He said, fathers present at the birth of their children, still rare in the 19, late 1970s, became the norm by the late 1980s. Movies such as Baby Boom, Three Men and a Baby, Parenthood became the norm. He continues, child safety became an obsession. Baby on board now was in the signs, proliferated in the windows of early 80s, minivans, multiple ways to buckle in your children securely, child safety gadget industries of guards for plugs, stoves, doors, and stairs, enjoyed, listen to this, a double-digit growth. He called it, listen to this, a moral panic over children. We had rubber-padded playgrounds, school metal detectors, drug-free zones, Amber Alerts, Megan Laws, Code Adams, a new wall of adult vigilance began to arise around children and around the childhood world. He notes millennial kids did not resist the sheltering. They welcomed it. They understood the logic. They were special and therefore worthy of protection. And he warned that we have overprotected our children and they are losing resilience courage, stamina, and the ability to survive, and they don't launch. He said the social, the result of this social shift is overprotection of children. In other words, listen, you will either parent by faith or you will parent by fear. And if you parent by fear, your child will not be courageous, they'll not be independent, they'll not be uh, 
They'll not have a good, strong, positive self-image. They won't know who they are, as Elijah alluded to last week, and they will not be resilient, and they won't make it in life, and they'll be living at home when they're 40. And they are. Why? Because we've overprotected children. You know, there's a book by J.J. Jasper. J.J. Jasper is a radio personality for American Family Radio. It's a conservative radio station. J.J. Jasper wrote a book called Losing Cooper, Finding Hope to Grieve Well. In this account, J.J. Jasper said, I think it was a Saturday morning, he said Cooper, his little five-year-old, blonde-headed, blue-eyed, beautiful little boy, he's got a beautiful family, was playing with his sister. They were riding bikes. He said his wife was working in the kitchen. He said everything was just fine. J.J. Jasper said he went down and he said, Hey, Cooper, let's ride the go-kart. He said we would ride the go-kart. He had, I think he has four girls. He had one boy, Cooper. And so he, he, he said, let's ride the go-kart. And what do you do? You get in the go-kart and, and, and little Cooper would say, Flame on! And when he said that, J.J. Jasper said he would gun it and then he would flip it. He would turn it around real fast. He said on that particular day, J.J. said he looked at Cooper and said, come on, Cooper, let's ride the go-kart. And Cooper said, no, Dad, I don't want to. I wanna, I'm riding my bike with my sister. Come on, Cooper, let's ride. And at the, now, he'd already had a discussion with his wife. His wife was working around the house. And he said, why don't you go to Walmart? Go ahead and get groceries. Go ahead and do what you need to do and come on back. She said, I don't want to go. I want to stay at home. I'm busy. I'm working in the kitchen. And J.J. Jasper begged her to go to Walmart, and so she left and went to Walmart. And he begged his son, five-year-old Cooper, to get on, the, get on the go-kart and let's ride. Even though Cooper didn't want to. He wanted to ride bikes with his sister. He said they got on that go-kart. They were playing around out on the and they live out in a farm in a rural area. And he said, we were playing around when all of a sudden, little Cooper said, Daddy, flame on! And J.J. Jasper said, I did what I did a hundred times over. He said, I gave it full throttle, I gunned it, and I spun it around. And he said, we tipped. We didn't flip over, we tipped like this. We were sitting like this. He said, I undig my seatbelt. He said, I was trying to get out of there. He looked down and he said, Little Cooper was laying there with his head over, and he said, I said, Cooper, uh, Cooper, come on, let's unbuckle. It had broke Cooper's neck, and he died instantly. J.J. Jasper said he walks you through the grief and the sorrow and the pain, and all the while saying, it was my fault. If I hadn't told Melanie to go get groceries, she might have been there. If I hadn't interrupted Cooper, who was riding bikes with his sister, if I could go back and change anything. But you know what I thought? But you lived. You lived your life. And you taught Cooper how to live his life. And how do you know that it was not God's time, God's will, and God's plan to say to J.J. Jasper. He's been multiple times on James Dobson. He's been on testimonies all over this country, perhaps around the world. His testimony, his book has been a bestseller. He's affected the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness because of the story of Cooper. Yeah, you could have protected him. You could have never taken a chance. You could have never done anything. But it's the risk parent that we that we take in raising our children to be courageous and strong and resilient and able to survive it's what daniel shadrach and meshach had undoubtedly their parents had impressed into their life when they were 13 and 14 years old and nebuchadnezzar and the babylonian army came in destroyed the temple destroyed the walls killed many of their family and carried them into exile how could a 14-year-old man, a young man, stand against the most powerful ruler, Nebuchadnezzar? It was because his parents had built resilience and courage and strength in them. 
And they could look at Nebuchadnezzar and said, listen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't need any time for you to go through playing this tune again. We don't need you to tell us what we need to do. We know we're not going to bow down to your image and you can do whatever you want. The Bible said Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, heated the furnace seven times over and said, throw him in. 14-year-old kid walking around with the presence of Jesus Christ in that furnace of fire, walking around until Nebuchadnezzar jumps up off of his throne and said, did we not throw three men in there? He said, there's a fourth man, and he's like the son of the gods. And he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. And it was only then that they came out. My friend, parent, you better understand this. This world is extremely unstable. You never know when a rogue nation, it could be the Soviet, it could be the Russians, it could be the invasion in the Ukraine that goes into Western Europe. It could be China and their navy sitting at the brink of going to, to war against Taiwan. If they do, this is an act of war. We have no choice. We are in a what everyone calls World War III. And there's no guarantee that we can win the next war. And if your children are not built as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were built, they will not survive. There is no guarantee. You can feed them that slop you feed them. You can let them watch TV till they turn blue-eyed and spacey-eyed or whatever. You can never make them get out. You can never make them exercise. You can never teach them anything. And my friend, you're setting them up for ruin. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, these men caught the eye of the most powerful individual in the world because they were strong, resilient, and courageous. Wow. Bear Grylls in his book, Mind Fuel. Anybody know who Bear Grylls is? Just an unbelievable individual and a believer. Listen to what he wrote in his book, Mind, Fit, Mind Fuel. He said, I reckon I have had around 21 really close, life-threatening calls. Listen to this, unopened parachutes. I remember at Fort Sam Houston, no, Fort Riley, Kansas, at a ceremony, a graduation ceremony for us when the paratroopers were being dropped out of the plane over the ceremonial grounds and they were going to, they, 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 they can control their parachutes, they were going to glide in. It was part of the ceremony. We looked and one dropped, one dropped, one dropped, they start dropping. And all of a sudden we look and one guy, you've heard me tell this, he is plummeting. His chute's not opening. It's tangled up. And you see this, you see these, uh, it's an airborne ranger. You see these, some of the most seasoned soldiers and you see them up there feverishly working. And the crowd, people are screaming and he's working with everything in him. That's resilience. That's courage. He's not crying, I'm a victim. I wonder who packed this chute. He's trying to untangle it. And the crowd, people are beginning to cry. We're getting ready to watch a man drop dead, die there in front of us. And in a critical moment, all of a sudden, you see that movement that he makes and that shoot goes... And it opens up and a chorus from generals all the way down to privates begin to shout and celebrate. And he guided that parachute and he landed in that ceremony. And I thought to myself, Bear Grylls said, unopened parachutes. Of course, he's one of British most decorated military. He said rock falls, snake bites, avalanches, near drownings. He said the list goes on. He said they have all reminded me that I am very far from invisible, just mainly lucky with each near escape having incidentally added to my skill and my experience, which is the only positive byproduct. Listen to what he says. If we process trauma, suffering, heartache correctly, we can emerge strong. Courage, listen to this. He said, courage is not the absence 
of fear, but the tolerance of it. Wherever there is a mountain to climb, there'll be fear. The question is, how do we overcome it? Fear, listen to this, fear never relents. Remember that. It's the biggest tool the enemy has against you. Whether he's attacking your eternal security in Christ, or whether he's attacking your ability to live life and to make decisions that will affect your life forever, whether he's attacking you with fear when you're seeking out the will and the purpose and the plan God has for your life. Because let me tell you what the enemy will do. You know what I say to Ethan? I had Ethan up. I'm always mocking Ethan. Ethan, is, his, his, he's, a, he's a brilliant mind, and he loves football, and it's just like sitting there. I, I don't need the commentary of the NFL. I don't like some of them. I just have to turn to my grandson. And I said, Ethan, NFL's moving into Europe. Before long, you'll be an NFL analyst in, in Europe. And I can just see you calling your dad and I and saying, hey, why don't you and Uncle Jeffrey and Dad, why don't y'all all come over and, and uh, come over to London? I'm going to fly y'all over to London. We'll spend a few days and y'all come to the ball game here. The Patriots are playing or whatever, the Chiefs or whatever. And, and you, know, you, know what I, you know why I'm saying that to him? Because I want him to live right. I don't want fear. And I love what his dad and mom are doing because they carry him to Scotland, to England, to France. They, they, they expose him to all of that because they want him to, his, his horizons to be stretched beyond anything so that the enemy can't cripple him with fear but cause him to walk out in faith. Because I don't know that this godly young man may one day be an NFL analyst. I can tell you this much, David Jeremiah... His son is Daniel Jeremiah, and he's an NFL analyst. So the reality is, is listen, fear can cripple us. It diminishes. One writer said fear diminishes your freedom. It, it, according to the Bible, it cripples you. It enslaves you. And that's true. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, what is this spirit of fear that has so gripped you that you can't live life. And that's what can happen to you and I. Fear diminishes, again, your freedoms. And according to the Bible, fear will cripple you and it will enslave you to fear. You know what agoraphobia is? Agoraphobia, in counseling terms, is fear of the market. Agoraphobia, fear of the market. Uh, anybody, ever, anybody ever had a anxiety or panic or fear to the degree that you just could not be around public in public places okay i have i nearly died in, in overseas as a missionary and so i came home with post-traumatic stress everybody listen closely i walked in such fear i had such agoraphobia listen to this i couldn't get my hair cut the thought of me sitting there, even though it was a dear friend, Leo McBride, the thought of sitting there in a chair and other people looking at me and, and feeling as if I was in prison. I had agoraphobia so bad that I could not get a haircut. And I remember sitting in Piccadilly, looking at my dad and said, Dad, I'm so gripped with anxiety and fear and panic, I can't even get a haircut. My friend, that's exactly what the enemy will do to you. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly, more abundantly. Let me ask you something. Will fear keep you from having an abundant life? You better believe it. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, and I wrote it down, look at yourself. You're a skeleton of faith. You're living in bondage to this spirit of fear that has so gripped your life. Timothy, you're ashamed of me. You're ashamed of the gospel. You're not fanning the flame of your giftedness. You're letting it die. He bring, Paul brings up his legacy. This is a matriarchal family. He brings up his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice. He says, remember these women of faith. Timothy, what's happened to you? I love that. This ability to, to call into question. And I wrote down here, parent, if the enemy can do anything to trip your child up, cause them to fail to be all that God would have them to be, is to live in fear. 
Why would Paul say that to Timothy? Because that happened to John Mark. You remember Paul and Barnabas on their, on their first missionary journey. They had, they had Barnabas' uh, uh, nephew. And, and, and somewhere along the trip, you remember John Mark got afraid. He got scared. Fear got, got into him. And fear so gripped him. You know what he did? He left the first missionary journey, first missionary trip of the New Testament church. He left Paul and Barnabas and all of the future and everything that God could do in his life. He left it because he was afraid and went home. How many of you are in the will of God, but you're afraid and you're scared and you're just about ready to give it all up? Bear Grylls went on to say this. He said, courage is a muscle. It's not a character trait. It's a muscle that each of us can cultivate and we can build on. And it creates resilience. He went on to say, many parents, listen to what Bell Grill said. He said, many parents protect our children from what might in the end build resilience and courage. We start with the littler, more gentle things and we move them toward more difficult challenges and we're always there but we're guiding them and listen I know this is not popular but yes we're pushing and nudging them out why because I don't know that Ethan is not an NFL analyst in London but that Ethan is in Hong Kong. And the Chinese, along with the Russians, have defeated this nation, crippled our military, and we are incapable of responding, and we can't get ourselves out, and because of the way we are right now, we don't deserve the hand of God to touch this nation. But I know this, I want you to listen. That guy right there, his faith, his courage, his resilience, even if his parents are killed, will rise up and be a man of God in China with, filled with light, salt, yeast, and will make a difference in China. You see, resilience. Nelson Mandela said this. He said, the brave man or woman is not he or she who does not feel afraid, but is, it is he or she who conquers that fear. And let me remind you, Nelson Mandela, imprisoned by apartheid in South Africa, standing for racial equality and human rights. Remember, he spent about 30 years of his life in prison. He came out, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he walked in the steps of Martin Luther King Jr., he became a great leader, Nobel Prize winner, and led South Africa through the most difficult time in its history. And you hear what he said, young people? The brave man or woman is not he or she who does not feel afraid, but he or she who conquers that fear. President Lincoln's, President Lincoln's presidency, his future presidency on the campaign trail came down to two words. Lincoln was in Springfield, Missouri. He had been warned, do not say these two words. It will end your, your quest to be the president of the United States and may threaten your life. You don't want to guess what the two words are? House divided. He called it what it was. He said this nation is a house divided on, on, on race, on slavery. And when he said those two words, there was a threat on his life and a sure end to his presidency, his quest to be the president of the United States, but nothing caused him to cower. You know, last week, Ledge reminded us in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about shipwrecks and beatings, and Ledge went through all of the things that the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth. And I wrote this down. Paul, Paul lists the cost of living his life on the edge. That's what he did. You know, Ledge reminded us of had he not been resilient, courageous, he wouldn't have been able to say that. We're living in a day where fear has become something you and I are going to have to overcome. 
We're living in a society of worst-case thinking, a culture of fear, zero-risk environment. We're guided by the precautionary principle to protect ourselves. As Ferdy, a man I referred to a couple of weeks ago, he said, people are educated to be preoccupied with their safety and to regard being fearful as a sensible and responsible orientation toward the world. Wow. You know, um, I don't want to leave you. Hopefully, as a parent, if you're building resilience, what are you going to have to do? You can't overprotect your children. They're going to fall. They're, they're going to stumble. They're going to cry. They're going to be at points in their life when, uh, when everything in you as a parent wants to rush, rush in there and rescue them and save them and pull them out. But instead, you're going to have to say, God, I've entrusted them into your care. God, help me to build courage, resilience. Help me to groom and to grow them into godly men and women. Because, God, I don't know what their future holds, but I know who holds their future. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm not going to overprotect. I'm going to, I'm going to, and hey, that's intentional parenting. Parenting, that's not, that's not you sitting on Facebook, social media, TikTok, or whatever you're sitting on. That's not you on the phone all the time. Not you watching hours on the end of TV. It's not you gaming on your phone. It's not you doing this. It's you being intentional, saying, God, I want to groom and develop and train up this child to be a man or a woman of God to make a difference. Now, let me leave you something real quickly. And you're not going to be able to write fast enough, so don't even try Resilience is developed. I'm going to say these and then I'm going to close. What time is it? Oh, my. Let me just say, let me say a couple of them. There are 10. Resilience has to be developed in your life. Now, now Kathy just said, go on. But you remember in class when, when the teacher says, if there's no other questions, I'm going to let you go. And then all of a sudden, some student goes, ah, Professor, Dr. So-and-so, okay. which I'm teasing with Kathy, but I know it's, it's late. It's time to go. But resilience can be developed. Now listen to this, parent. Number one, being proactive. What does that mean? That means you face head on. You don't procrastinate. You don't ignore. You don't have apathy or indifference. You face a problem. You're proactive. You're straight on. This is the problem. That's what you're going to teach your children. When your child gets mad and they throw a ball in a game or they do something or whatever, you're not going to go, what are you doing out there? You embarrassed me so bad. Why did you, why'd you throw that ball at that guy on second base? You're going to sit down and say, you know, uh, I, I, I noticed you were upset. Were you upset? Yes, ma'am. What happened? Why did you throw the ball? Because he called me an SOB. Okay. Do you think how you handled that situation was the best way to handle it? You got kicked out of the game. Your team lost your skills and ability. How could you have handled that differently? You know what you're teaching your child? You're teaching ch your child not to sit and go, <laughs> well, I'm just a victim. Nobody likes me. You're teaching your child to be proactive, to step back, to be aware of themselves and of the situation, and they're proactive. They're involved. Secondly, and I'll close with this, your child has to learn to develop the skills that give them the strength in the private areas of their life. When your child is in the Word of God, when your child is in prayer, when you're modeling as a parent a strong devotional life, your children see that. You watch them. They're in church. They're in prayer. They're in the Word of God. They hear Christian music in that home. That home is like a harbor just filled with the glory and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And your child is being groomed. You're an intentional parent. You're developing a child to face life situations, to be proactive. But at the same time, if you're not building privately, spiritually, you're not going to survive. Not going to survive.
parent, I, I may be dead and gone. Some of these young people may one day be in the very situation that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were. But I don't worry about Davion. I've watched God develop and grow him into a man of God. And whether he ends up in China, Moscow, or wherever it may be, he'll be salt light and yeast to a country and a world and a civilization that he otherwise would have never been able to see. Why? Because God has a plan and a purpose for Davion's life. And what Bell and Russell are doing, they want to build courage, resilience. They want to push him in every way they can to be everything God would intend him to be. And may he never, may he never walk in fear. May he always walk in faith. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you, and Lord, we love you. And Lord, I know I've gone long, but Lord, this is such a critical need. And Lord, we'll begin to put together practical steps for parents to learn how, hands-on, to build this into the children. And Lord, not only for parents and their children, but for uh, husband and wives in their marriages, for singles in their life, as many of them are, are still looking and wrestling with God's will and purpose and plan for their life. Lord, may fear be a, a byproduct May the only fear that we have be the fear of God. And if we fear God, we don't fear anything else. Do you understand that? Do you realize that if you fear God, you don't fear nothing else? Do you know that? Did you know that's the only fear God tells you to fear? Fear of God. You know why God says that? Because let me give you an example. And I'll close with an amen. You may be sitting here and you fear that you left the roast on, the oven on, and the roast is burning, right? And you're, you, you may be feared. Now, I'm just making this up. But let's say you don't know whether you cut the stove off, you don't know if the roast is burning, you don't know if the house may catch on fire, so you got that fear. When all of a sudden there's an armed threat comes into this sanctuary, let me ask you something. Raise your hand if you're still worried about the roast. No, because what? A, a greater fear has trumped that fear, right? You know what the Bible says? When you and I fear God, we don't have to fear anything else. And there's peace there. And that's why the Bible talks the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You come. If Christ has spoken to you, you come as we sing this hymn of invitation. May never be a moment like this moment. Young people, give your life to Christ. God, I'm, I want to serve you. You come. Parent, you may be to get at this altar and pray for your children.